Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my return guest is Tamara McMillan. Tamara is a very experienced sales leader. She's a, an active proponent of diversity, inclusion, equity, but she has a very different take. And today we're going to be looking at diversity as a really linchpin topic because I don't think people really understand it. So we're going to define it, but we're going to define it in a slightly different way. And we're going to build your understanding of it in a slightly different way. So before we get into that, Tamara, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your history, please? Sure. Hi, Marcus. It's always great to be back. And I feel privileged to be one of your guests. You have such remarkable thought leaders on your program. So thanks again for having me. I've been in tech uh, since the mid-90s. I've worked in a variety of types of businesses from pre-revenue, startup and scale-up, all the way through through 14 to 15 in a variety of technologies, um, SaaS, cloud, IT services, uh, and product-led growth. And I even had a joyful year working in private equity as an operating partner. I suppose what that's shown me over my measure of time is you see a lot of what good looks like and you experience a lot of what isn't so great. And I think what they all have in common is how have people been ultimately treated? What's the approach that individuals, leaders and organizations take, how they value their customers, the communities they operate in, and the people who help them achieve their results? So. I look forward to the conversation about how diversity plays into that. Well, let let me start with the first and most obvious question. With that kind of background, you have enormous range. Um, What does range give you in terms of your ability as a sales leader to execute on the job to be done? I suppose one of the things is that um, there's so much more that's the same than different. You know, if you think about traditional hiring practices, we often look for people who have been there, done that, which means same industry, same size organizations, same markets. But in my experience, those nuances can be really important and they can be key differentiators. But predominantly, there's so much that's the same. At the end of the day, it's about having a clear strategy, having metrics and alignment toward that strategy, making sure people are supported to execute against the strategy and that it's clear you know, how we're doing, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. And it doesn't really matter what size of business or what industry or what geography you've worked in. Those things are critical in order to achieve success, to operate at pace, and to to keep and retain happy, successful employees. Okay. So you've touched on a number of critical issues there. So we'll look at happiness. We'll look at retention. But before anything else, let me start with this question. What is good about diversity? Well, we can look at the financials, right? We can look at the financial statistics of things like, you know, organizations that are diverse generate two and a half times uh, higher cash flow. Their revenues are 19% higher. They're 15% more likely to beat their industry average for performance. There's always new statistics coming out about how organizations perform better. They're more innovative, they're more collaborative, their time to value tends to be shorter. All of those things are really material at a business level. But ultimately, I think what good looks like for diversity is how it feels for the individuals who are part of a group. That means everyone can feel valued. They can feel 
okay to be different about whatever aspect of them is diverse, or perhaps not as common in the group. Diversity means that you're always thinking about the voice that may not be in the conversation presently. So you're trying to go beyond yourself, like not just what do I think, what would be best in my opinion, but how would other people view what we're trying to achieve here? What would their input into this conversation be? Or what would their experience be if we did something in this way? To me, that's what diversity is. It's a challenge in thinking and operating that's inclusive. Okay. I mean, you, you've listed a litany of value that a genuinely diverse organization might be able to tap into. Yet we're 2023 and diversity in terms of gender, race, orientation, ethnicity, all that kind of stuff, in many, in the minds of many uh, who are in leadership is a minefield. And a common reaction that I know you face is, well, we don't want to just be ticking a box or following quotas. I know you get very um, (laughs) emotionally charged over this topic, but you mentioned something as we were prepping for this which was really important, which is to take into consideration the views of those the people saying that. And I think that's a really powerful position to start with. So do you mind ex- introducing the audience to it and uh, expanding on it? So my experience has been that when organizations are embarking on trying to improve the amount of diversity inside of their organizations, it starts with a conversation that brings up a lot of reactions. And I don't think those reactions are there because the individuals who are are leaning into this, usually the executive teams, are not desiring wholeheartedly to be more diverse. But what individuals have are reactions to how they feel about that. And partly because diversity hasn't yet been defined in that organization. They don't know what that means. And so people react to it because In some instances, all it feels like it means is we have too many middle-aged white men and we need less of them. Now, while that may in fact be a mathematical truth in terms of if you're trying to represent different types and groups of people, you know, they are part of the diversity of an organization. And when we don't approach this topic thoughtfully, we can actually make a significant portion of our employee population feel like outcasts or feel as if they are the problem themselves. They're not the problem, right? The fact is the organization is a challenge that says, how do we get better at representing the communities we operate in, the customers that we serve, and and building a business that is thinking more holistically about the problems we're trying to solve? And the only way we can do that is we have different types of individuals who think differently, who come from a variety of different backgrounds, perspectives, and approaches inside of our business. Can you explain to me how diversity can directly impact the balance sheet? So from a financial perspective, there is a justification to be truly diverse. We talked about some of the statistics at the beginning. And, you know, I'll be honest, there are many, many, and I don't have all of them to hand. But what we know, and there have been numerous studies done on, is that the financial results for organizations that have greater diversity representation always surpass those organizations that are significantly less diverse. You can start with gender diversity as a simple one, but you have to look at all levels of diversity. And the the reason for that is that you are bringing different types of thinking 
different ways of acting, more inclusive ways of being into problem solving inside of organizations that tends to produce results faster and more efficiently and effectively. Okay, well, let's speak directly to some CFO issues that um, in course of conversation in the last three months I've had. The first one is protection against risk from regulation or non-compliance. How does having a diverse team uh, help reduce that risk? I guess I struggle to say at such a specific level that because we're diverse, we're going to mitigate our risk in compliance. What I think you're going to do is have better representation. So you might have more awareness of even where you have risk. If we only have one sort of view on a risk position, which means we hire only Cambridge graduates who are predominantly of this background and and they've studied these sorts of degrees. Harvard Law. They're going to be oriented toward thinking about problems in a very specific way, through a specific language lens, because that's how they've been instructed. And there's nothing wrong with that lens. But if we think of that as being a 45 degree angle, well, the rest of the picture then is missing. So when we have people who come from a broader set of backgrounds, ethnicities, environments, ways of thinking, neurodiversity, gender, race, orientation, their lens will be different. That means that we would identify different types of risks or gaps in our thinking or ways that we could approach problems. So I don't think it matters if it's about compliance or risk or anything else. The idea is that individuals naturally think differently. However, the more they have in common in group, the more they get group think. Interesting. Okay. And with group think, you become tribal. It's much easier for people. You're limited, right? Because there's, you've got tons of confirmation bias going on, right? Like, I mean, we're going to think the same. I'm going to think your idea is great. You're probably going to think my idea is great. And we're so great. It's like, everything's great. Oh my God, that's amazing. But there's all kinds of things that we wouldn't have thought of because that's not our orientation, how we think about things. So it's not that we're intentionally necessarily trying to leave those things out. They might not even be in the round of our thinking. And oftentimes individuals have come up also through, um, particularly as they get more and more experienced, they will have worked in the same industry. They will have worked in similar companies. Often people work for one organization and then a competitor and then an adjacent competitor, right? So what that means is we're, we're just continuing to think and be around the same types of people who think the same types of things and solve problems in very much the same types of way. There's very little innovation that can happen because you've not introduced anything new. And for a human being to naturally go outside of their comfort zone and think of something completely different, it's not, it's just not likely. Unless they're in the right environment and they have, they have the facility to do that. Okay. What about capital protection? CFO has been telling me capital protection comes immediately after external risk from compliance and regulation. So how does diversity help solve some of, uh, or benefit in the area of capital protection? Well, certainly in the area of capital procurement, right? Like getting investment and having interest from investors. It is a key criteria. ESG is a factor that organizations are looking at, you know, so, and, and that's well beyond certainly diversity. It's how much do you care about the planet? How much do you care about society? To what extent is your organization purposeful and intentional about doing something other than generating profits? Clearly, investors will always need to generate a return. That is their duty to ensure that there is a return. But 
because they have already identified that organizations that operate in this way are more successful, are more profitable, have lower turnover of employees, all of the things that we know are the, the outcomes of diverse environments. Those are businesses they want to invest in. They want to invest in organizations that, you know, don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. They can evidence what they're doing. What do investors see that is good in those type of businesses? I think the things that we, you know, just touched on, they have better culture. They tend to retain their clients for longer. So, you know, we look at things like, well, you know, lifetime values of a client or time to value for customers. What is my churn ratio? Right? Environments that are diverse tend to do better in those areas. If I reflect my customers, that means I can understand them. I communicate with them better. They're going to be more likely to stay, provided I, I offer a good service at a value, at a, at a value, right? And they, I deliver outcomes. But people want to work with people who they feel understand them and care about their success. And when I'm working with people that are like me, I'm going to feel like I can trust them more and that I'm understood. I think another really important element, which is the third pillar for the CFOs that I've been talking to, is growth and having a diverse workforce also probably means that you can tap into non-customers um, who you're not tapping into at the moment because you don't have that frame of reference to appeal to them. And if you want to grow, you really better be tapping into non-customers. Absolutely. And also markets or groups of customer types that you may not have naturally thought of. I think it takes people preventing, uh, providing some healthy challenge and saying, hey, have we thought about this? If we looked over here, Again, if we're only operating in the same environment all the time, we just might not think of that, right? It can create opportunities that are absolutely brand new for growth and markets that we can tap into. I'll give you a perfect example. Having responsibility for EMEA, oftentimes companies are sitting there and they try to face the challenge of who to hire and where to hire them. And if you're you know, a UK-based company, it's easiest to hire people out of here, particularly not to be political, but when we were still in the EU, it was very easy for people to work and operate out of the UK. The difficulty is, particularly when you're working with technical products, is the level of English proficiency at a highly technical level changes country by country in Europe, the more complex things get, right? So then what do you need to do? You either continue to try and hire you know, English-only speakers and sell into markets in Germany and Sweden and Switzerland and all these different places. And in Switzerland, to be fair, they, you probably wouldn't have as much difficulty, but when you're selling into France. But, you know, there comes a level of frustration because it becomes difficult to communicate about very complex things at an equal level. So the greater success can be found when I have individuals, you know, strategies that are often employed is, well, we may not be able to hire or build offices in all those countries, but we certainly can hire employees and focus on hiring maybe our more technical employees to make sure they have a high level of language proficiency and cultural understanding in these markets where we have customers that we want to serve, right? And that's not just so we can sell more stuff. It's actually so we can help our clients extract value out of the things they've already bought, which means they're going to stay with us longer and they'll be more likely to buy more things. It's a very simple way to say, you know, who do you think is going to sell more and have a better relationship with their customer? The people who only speak their native language or the people who speak the language of their clients? And if you extrapolate the language of a client to mean now something other than a foreign language, right, or a different language to us, but actually 
their just their cultural orientation, their socioeconomic orientation, the industry background that they come from, how international are they as a person? All of those things become the language that someone speaks. And that's why diversity matters, because otherwise we're speaking in one way. Well, it's really interesting. One of my um, friends and partners, Zach Selch, has worked and uh, built alliances in over 150 countries now. And just the approach that he has to trying to immerse himself in the culture and how valuable that's been in terms of... He ended up picking up a huge contract with a hospital because he knew how to make feijoada, which is a a Brazilian bean (laughs) stew. And it was like uh, the, uh, the prospect's grandmother made it. And the prospect didn't believe that he'd made it. But because he was so immersed in the culture and he you know, bothered to practice and learn, all of a sudden he was accepted. And I think one of, one of the challenges is that we don't have that cultural flexibility within our middle management and our leadership layer. Because the number of times I, I'm coaching managers and they're walking on eggshells to avoid difficult conversation because they're worried about upsetting people or offending people or getting in trouble with HR. I think part of the problem is that we're not having enough honest conversation because we just don't understand each other enough. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I earlier, I think a conversation, I'm not sure it might have been before we started the podcast, but, you know, there sometimes it's like, well, why aren't we doing this diversity thing? You know, isn't it easy? It's like, actually, it's incredibly hard. It is hard. I mean, it's not an excuse not to do it. And actually, we've gotten quite good at hiring. So I think hiring diverse people is not as much of a challenge as it was. It's still something we have to work on because people will still claim, well, we, don't, we, we would like to hire X types. We would like to have more diverse people in this particular area of our business, but we can't find any. And, you know, the retort always has to be, have you looked any place different than where you've been looking? <laughs> are you still, are you fishing in the, in the river where you normally catch salmon and, and trying to get a catfish or something. I mean, not like I know fish, but I know that those two generally aren't in the same place. But, you know, it's like you have to do something a little bit different. So I think, first of all, it is hard because it's not just about hiring diverse people. It's about creating an environment where people feel safe, they feel equal, they feel that they belong. And that's something that I think organizations are still learning how to do. And yes, these conversations can be tricky and they can be scary. Um, but we have to lean in to those conversations with respect. We have to create safety and a willingness to really learn. And when people make mistakes, you know, let's try and guide them in a kind-hearted way as opposed to at least giving them the benefit of doubt that maybe they were actually intent on doing the right thing, but they executed it really, really poorly. Um, I think the other thing you talked about your friend, I just wanted to make a comment about how he embedded himself in, these, in the culture and sort of went beyond the language. I think that's also something that's really important. Of course, it would be great to have people who have uh, the ability to speak many languages and they reach into markets with that language skill, even could be at a, at a fluency level, which is fantastic. Certainly the, the next level that drives even greater understanding and alignment is if you've really experienced the culture because language in and of itself doesn't really tell us how people are. And again, if we extrapolate language to mean something much broader than, than foreign languages, right? Language is not native to us. That ends in all kinds of things. You know, 
and people that are neurodivergent, let's just say, for example, they'll have some language aspects, just like when you go into a new business and they have a whole set of acronyms. This is actually how we have to think about trying to get to know people. We all speak different languages based on where we're from and who we are. And we can't be all things to all people, but we can at least just try to be understanding. So I think the the lesson I'm taking from this is that we have to be patient and we really need to look for common ground. I started the episode with the question, what's good about diversity? And what you've demonstrated is this litany of value. And I don't think there is anyone in a leadership position who would not want to be able to reap that harvest um, because it's incredibly rich. Um, And it does take work. But this is part of a wider issue, which I think is this whole concept of the wicked problems within the way businesses operate. We, we, We need to understand that businesses are systems, they're organisms. And the different parts need to be healthy and they need to communicate and they need to work in harmony. When they don't, you get disease. You see this happening all the time in organizations where they have their little islands that they have to defend and they're building their fiefdoms because there is ambiguity throughout. And I think one of the most important elements of all of this is if you are going to build a diverse team, is there needs to be unity around common purpose. Yes. Then what we can do is we can find what each individual believes they're bringing to the party and what value they would gain or be able to uh, deliver. And that way we end up with a comp- uh, we end up with a win-win where no one compromises. That sounds to me like a much stronger agreement between people. And it's much harder for people to let others down when they co-developed it. So it, it, it strikes me that that work seems to be really worth the while. How do you put the effort in? How do you recruit the right team to make sure that you can manage that? Because that sounds very hard. I think some of this is the some simple things that we've heard about, right? Like, do you hire people that have more of a growth mindset or a fixed mindset? Are they open individuals? Do they they say see failure as learning or do they see it as you know falling off the cliff I think people have to have an openness they need to have some skill and will right they need to have abilities to execute and the desire to be able to achieve whatever it is that we're about they may not have all the answers they may need to come on the journey but if they have enough skill and they bring an open mindset and will I think there's generally not a lot of things that people can't achieve in that environment I find that Normally, organizations try to do too many things, and therefore they do most nothing well. What we need, and some of that is because, right, we've shifted towards um, short-term investment and return models, you know, quarterly earnings results. The pressure is intense. These kinds of changes take time. To your point, it's about patience. They take time, which doesn't mean they take forever. We were talking about marginal gains, right? I think you have to be thinking every every summit of a mountain starts with a single step and you get to the peak by continually taking steps in the right direction. And you course correct. If you have found that perhaps a path that you thought was going to be best, you might have to adjust. That's all we're talking about here, but it is about continuing to make progress. And we need to allow ourselves to not do everything in the same lens as we may have to think about our returns, or our numbers, that some games are longer games. Some 
destinations are going to take longer to reach. But as long as we're making good, you know, momentous progress, that should be celebrated and rewarded. And make sure you have milestones on the way where you can stand in the face of victory and say, we've made it this far. Instead of looking at the top and going, God, we still have so far to go. We need to be more forward-looking instead of backward-looking all the time. We have to celebrate that progress. And I think this is just, it's a, it's a mindset thing for me. That, that's how we so do this. On that note then, if we're trying to look forward rather than look back, talk to me about what we measure. In terms of diversity, inclusion, belonging. In terms of diversity, in terms of hiring and recruitment, in terms of sales. I'm really curious, with, with diversity as a theme, what should we be measuring if we're trying to inform ourselves of how we can improve and adjust so that we can accomplish our intended outcome? I think if, if what we're trying to do is change the mix inside of a company, to, then it, it has to, first of all, the challenge is in identifying what your starting point is, because identifying oneself and the characteristics, uh, diverse characteristics you bring is completely optional. So I think one way that we individually can help is have a willingness to opt in, help your organization know where they stand in terms of the diversity that they have and across as many characteristics as possible. Let's not just look at gender or race. Let's let's look at the full complement. So if we can create an environment of trust and get people to identify, I think that's the first thing. We know where we're beginning and we need to know where we're beginning at all levels. Very typically, the greatest diversity is going to be in the entry levels of an organization. And as we move up in the organization, we usually find less diversity. And part of that is because we've not been diverse over time and it takes time to get into those jobs. So again, this is a patience game. It's hard to change the top as quickly as we can perhaps, and I apologize for the latter view, but easily as we can change entry level, right? Entry level should be the easiest thing to change, but then we also have to keep them. So the, so first we have to think about how are we doing it, creating pools of candidates for each role that we have how diverse are those pools and you know what are the ponds we're fishing in to make sure that we have as many of them as possible do we have diverse interview panels so that someone that looks like the candidates that we're representing is always present at every conversation then it's how are we doing it hiring getting those people through the in process actually on the team then how are we doing it retaining that talent how is how is diversity being retained over time then how are we doing it promoting that talent is it similar, same, or different? Are we investing in the development of all of our people so that they can progress at similar rates and levels? I think that, I mean, that's just quite tactically how you can do it, right? And also your diversity might look different in different markets where you operate. Can you accelerate the advancement of diverse groups by providing mentoring and coaching from leadership so that they can start creating a management and leadership succession plan and runway because I think one of the big problems that I see is the number of managers who just get tapped on the shoulder and told you are one and that's their runway and then they do what was done to them or they do what was what they think is best and they try and read around and do whatever an 18 month to two-year runway to learn how to do that job uh, would be significantly better for everyone that they were going to manage let alone them and the business, than just tapping them on the shoulder and saying, Tamara, you're really good at um, being an individual contributor. Off you go and manage of them. Absolutely. I mean, mentoring and coaching in any business, I think, is hugely helpful. 
I actually think an effective way for businesses to become more inclusive and create equality would be to allow the, you know, the diverse talent in your organization to be the mentors and not have it at a level. We normally think of mentoring and coaching as someone who is senior coaching someone who is junior, but actually we need to shake that model up. We need to actually be the mentoring that needs to go on. Yes, there's some to develop people into roles, but let's also think about the other kind of mentoring and coaching, which is coach and mentor us on how to create an environment where everyone can thrive. Why don't we let them coach us on that? I mean, that could be interesting. The other thing is that, yeah, we always have to be thinking about how to develop people, but organizations have to decide when they're setting their budget to actually invest in development of their people. It is hugely an underfunded part of every business I've ever been part of. Management gets 3% of the global spend on training and development. Now, there's a huge amount of money thrown at it. But in my experience, most of that money is wasted because people go on training and then they forget very quickly because it's not reinforced. Yeah. Or badly, it's sold badly, it's implemented badly. So when we're talking to our people and we have a diverse group of people, presumably that can inform us significantly on how we as an organization need to iterate and improve. So in terms of the value of business innovation, not just product innovation and uh, innovation in terms of new markets, but how you operate as a business, how you think as a business, how you interact as a business, all of those seem to be areas that are ripe for innovation. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we talked uh, earlier today about defining words. <laughs> Collaboration, there's one. Like, what does yeah. that actually mean? And how do you manifest it? What are the things that you put in place to ensure it happens? So, for example, you know, KPIs and objectives are often set within departments or by functions. There's very few that are shared. There's so little done around internal SLAs. And when they're set, they often fear, they're based around like punitiveness. You need to get this back to me in this period of time, as opposed to what, what would be a agreeable amount of time for someone to get something done for you. You know, what, what would work for you instead of I need it in this period of time? It's with all the other priorities you have on your plate, you know this is important for me to succeed. What will be reasonable for you to do it in? And then we can talk about if that's going to really work and we can kind of negotiate around that. I think this whole concept of collaboration, ways of working, how we are inclusive, is something that we don't really define as a business. We kind of think everybody knows what it means to be a good collaborator. I think what people have a tendency to do, I, I've, I've been working on this model where there are different levels of low trust, high risk of conflict. Um, and it starts with compete, where you carry a very sharp knife. You trust no one. You're always trying to get ahead. Then there's coexist. And that's normally quite, uh, it's a reluctant coexistence. It's like me with technology. I know I should, but I struggle with it sometimes. And I need a bit of a handhold and I feel a bit of an idiot, but I, I coexist with it. And it's the same thing in partnerships. We see this where you sort of exist with a referral partner, but you'll try and take an advantage. So you've got very sharp elbows as you race to the finish line. And then you've got collaborate. Now, collaboration, I see this in a lot of vendor uh, partner situations where the vendor doesn't quite trust the partner, so they don't give them the good stuff. And they, if they need to 
play fast and loose with their um, commission payments in order to make their valuation look okay. They're okay to do that every now and again. Yeah, they'll, they'll take the risk because it doesn't matter. We'll just find some more partners. So they don't really have a real partnership mentality. It's all done through thick legal contracts. And as you go down from collaborate to coexist to uh, compete, there is massive diminishing levels of trust. Now, the next level up I see is cooperation. And cooperation is where we have common purpose. We're looking at the same problem together. Uh, We try to understand it together. We co-develop a solution. And then we choreograph how we work together to solve it. We work it out together. Then we work together to fix it. And we elevate everybody. Now, Mm. that that to me strikes me as a, a significantly more effective and efficient way of working. Because then we're tapping into the strengths of everyone, and my weaknesses get eradicated by the strengths of you and a, a dozen other people. I think it also, I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. It also says that what you use as your measurement of success is as important to me as what I use for my measurements. Mm. Because it, I've always sort of, I suppose I've lumped collaboration and cooperation into the same category. Because to me, that's the entire point. Like, when, when you're really collaborating or cooperating, as you've used the term there um, really well, you care as much about someone else succeeding. And you're mindful that what you're asking of them could impact their success for their other ambitions and their other metrics. And so that's why it has to be thoughtful. And, and the example that I used of, hey, I need this, you know, I need something done on a regular basis if we come and make a request. Instead of saying, well, I need it in three days acknowledging that they may have some other things they have to do and they have probably 10 other people who are asking them for things. So having a conversation in a bit more open manner that says, what, when would be reasonable for you to consistently deliver something like that? And they provide a response. And then I have the opportunity to say, okay, that's going to be a bit tough for me. And these are the reasons why do you have any flex or maybe I can push a bit this way and we can come to a common success point. That that's the whole, for me, that's the purpose of that cooperation and collaboration is to figure out how we help each other win. Again, my definition of partners are we help each other get better. That's the purpose of a partnership. Whether we make each other money, whether we help each other expand our thinking, whether we help us become more effective, that's a true partnership. And it means that we do enter into constructive conflict. Um, One one of my favorite Mm. things is fighting with my partners (laughs) because we learn so much if we don't take it personally and we put our egos aside because we're working towards a common mission, a common purpose. What's really interesting is taking this leap and extrapolating it into the concept of the ecosystem. What COVID did in my mind is it's created a catalyst for the next renaissance because it bumped us forward 10 years in terms of digitization. It proved that now you can recruit from the global talent pool And if you're intelligently managing distributed team, you can put together amazing teams and amazing solutions. And you can start to also work outside of your organization and work with a dozen or a hundred other organizations in an ecosystem, which gives you incredible capacity if you work together and you draw on the strength of that diversity of thinking and experience and perspective, 
the elegance of the solutions that you can come up with and the totality of them, this gives me real hope because we, we can start to tame wicked problems and then turn uh, wicked problems into complex ones. Now you can control that. Yeah. There's something you can do about it. That gives me a lot of hope. Absolutely. And I love that what you articulated there around the talent being distributed in different partners and different ways. That, that is what diversity is. So whether it's happening inside of an organization or if it's happening the way that you engage externally, but yes, we, we do better. I do think that there's been some oversimplification of this we can have global talent. This is a really hard problem, not, not just because of the general, not everybody is effective at managing distributed teams and distributed talent, making people feel included and you know well enough informed and resourced and supported, but tax implications, entity implications, governing law. Like there's, it's a very, it sounds beautiful and wonderful. I can have employees all over the world. I can just find the best people wherever they are and let them crack on. It's like, yeah, that sounds great. It's actually quite hard, but how wonderful that we now have a new ambition, something to think about. This is not a problem we ever even thought of entertaining solving before because we already had an answer. We didn't do it. <laughs> you, came in, you came into the office. Maybe if you've been in tech, you might get a few days at home. It was not a problem to solve because it didn't exist as an option. Now it's an option. Some people want to rotate really far and go, oh, yeah, I could be anything, anywhere, anytime. It's like, well, ideally, yeah. But we have a few steps to get there, but at least now we've got a new destination that we can drive toward. And those sorts of solutions will help us solve the problem that we started with, with the challenge, the opportunity of how to create more diverse environments and ultimately make sure that those diverse individuals feel included, that they're equal, that there's equal opportunity and that they can bring them whole selves to work and that every, everybody is on even footing. Right. I mean, that's we don't live in a world where that's true. So we're trying to create something in some ways artificially inside of an organization that is not happening in society. And we should do it. In fact, we should do it because it's not happening in society. It will help society get there. I'm on a mission and my objective is to act as a beacon. Well, not me, but the companies that I work with. I want them to represent what's good and to demonstrate that you can build really good, successful unicorn businesses without having to treat people badly and without fixating on stuff that makes the customer this forgotten afterthought and the human abuse that goes on. There's no need for it. Shareholders will make a lot more money under this model. When you approach another human being, do you approach them with optimism, openness, curiosity or do you approach them with fear concern preconceived notions like if we could just shift toward thinking the best of someone you know it's almost like trust is given instead of earned what what if we grace is given kindness it's just given let someone demonstrate that they're not worthy but the environment that we often operate from is you need to prove to me you're good enough you need to show me that you deserve my trust you need to earn my respect. That, that, that's a much tougher environment to operate in where you want to bring the best of people. I mean, you know, the old saying is you get further with honey than vinegar. If you treat people with kindness, respect, and trust at the outset, granted, there will be circumstances you're walking down a dark alley at night on your own. Okay, you might not trust everyone who pops into the alley, but 
you walk into work, you walk into a shop, you walk out on the street. People, why can't we approach human beings with optimism and kindness and trust? And I think if we did that, these other things would be much easier to solve. And they are, because um, when people feel threatened, they get defensive. And when they get defensive, they project that out and the other person then gets defensive. And it's a spiral of violence. So again, this is where the middle management layer is so utterly critical because they can create that environment where people live in fear. If the manager is a persecutor or a rescuer, they'll create conditions where people feel diminished, where they feel like they want to give less discretionary effort. And th- this is all this, the real value from getting human beings to work together is where they volunteer. Yeah. Well, I think we've talked about this before when you, you were mentioning about the managers. I always, um, particularly in sales, I think it's always tricky, right? Because the majority of the interaction you have with your manager is around what's in your pipeline, what deal's closing, or where are you at, getting your quota in this month, right? It's all, it's a very defensive engagement by its very definition normally. And just shifting that to positive performance discussions, right? Like, how are you doing on those opportunities? Where can I help you? Are you getting much play? Do you feel you have the resources? If it's coming from a position of how am I helping you succeed? What are the roadblocks? It's a really different conversation. But oftentimes we don't engage in that way. One, because we're too pressed for time. We, as leaders, don't schedule regular break time. I, I used to make my leaders schedule thinking time. I said, I want on your calendar this week at least an hour. You have my permission to piss off, go for a walk, sit in a cafe. I don't care what you do. I need you to think and just give yourself breathing room. Don't think about solving the problem on the table. Like just think about the boss you want to be, the way you want to work, the kind of people you want to work with, how you want to develop. Just think about something, how you want to talk to customers. Just go and think and then come back and all the problems will be waiting for you. But you're going to have an orientation about solving those problems. It's based on what it is you want to achieve and the person you're trying to be and the people you're trying to help get there, right? We don't do that. Instead, we're like these little machines. We've got meetings after meetings, have agendas and they have structures and we've got to get there and get the number. All those things need to happen. But this tyranny of the urgent and this overwhelm of just making sure they've got a very busy day, it's robbing us of doing good work. And it comes back down to patience and the perception of time. This more haste, less speed is a a real disease that we've got to tackle. In the last 10 minutes, uh, I mean, that that was fascinating, but in the last 10 minutes, what I'd like to do is just pivot slightly and build on this whole idea of diversity within an ecosystem. Because a model in my head that I'm working on is how do we get lots of really A-player practitioners to work in a coordinated fashion and build real resilience. So the, the concept I have in mind is a cooperative. It's like a, a, a farmer's cooperative. They get together to improve bargaining power and to build resilience. Unions were the same thing. It was about creating collective power and you know, um, a, a single voice and being able to speak with uh, force yeah. and real meaning. Now, in order to be able to tap into the customer's major issues, I think. Vendors who don't adapt and recognize they are just a moving part in the overall machine of the customer's business are really going to struggle. 
And I'm very, very curious how this thinking around diversity can be applied when you're selling a range of people who don't work in the same company, but they're working towards common purpose around the customer's problems. I think, I mean, for me, you just solved it. (laughs) I mean, what binds us all together is delivering outcomes for customers. And those outcomes need to be of value. And the way that we continue to operate is to make sure that we have well understood what the value was the customer was trying to achieve when we sold them in the first place, that we track our time to value, that we validate the value, and that the value story hasn't changed, and then we build on it. This is one of the very, for me, this is a basic that I try to teach my sales teams is, you know, how good are we at capturing the beginning that first chapter of the customer story. Did we really understand what problem they were trying to solve? And more importantly, what the value was of solving? What was the trade-off if they hadn't? What period of time do they expect to get the value? And did we write it down? Like, did we share it internally? So that every conversation we have about now upselling, cross-selling, retaining, driving adoption, asking for a reference, capturing a case study, delivering a white paper, keeps that story of which the customer is the hero, not us, alive and growing and adding chapters and then writing a sequel. That, that's what we try to do with customers. And yeah, we can measure it and call, and call it lifetime value of the customer. And we can look at our LTV to CAC ratios. And we can look at our time. I mean, yeah, all those things are material, but the way that we improve them and deliver sustainable, long-lasting, profitable growth is by starting at the beginning with what it is they wanted to achieve with what they purchased from us and what value it had to them. Because people can want to solve problems and they can actually solve them, but they could also be low value problems. I'm not saying they're not worth solving, but you at least need to know if it was a low value problem because that's your right to continue to sell or continue to try and solve those problems in the future. It strikes me that so many of the behaviors within the end customer are misunderstood in terms of their buying motions. And more often than not, sales and marketing are trying to push a message at the wrong time. It's not timely. It's not relevant. It's not valuable to that person. It's feature function laden. It's selfish, whatever. And there's this significant disconnect. And what I'm thinking in terms of this ecosystem play is that all these different businesses are likely to be touching a single business at different times, at different points, different locations with different parts of their thinking or their buying cycle. And if organizations could start to partner and work together, building on that diversity of uh, thinking, the different points of contact, then they could start weaving together a much stronger proposition that lines up with the customer's strategy. But they then have to be ready to subsume their short-term ambition to turn that into a sale. Yeah. The one challenge that we face is that the way that organizations purchase is not in that way, right? Because problems are solved in pockets in a business, disconnected from the broader infrastructure ecosystem of an organization to fit into some bigger objective that they have. But, you know, budgets are siloed. So we, we buy components of things. We don't buy 
what would be a better holistic solution to a problem. So one of the challenges we have is in trying to work with customers in that way, but they're not purchasing in that way. So we have to think about how to break that down. And it's a much more complex conversation that we can have. But I agree with you. I just think that that's part of the problem we also have to solve is how to help them purchase then in this environment where we bring together all of the strings on the bow to say, no, I'm not just going to give you a new string. I'm going to give you the entire violin. And here's how I'm going to do it. Here's why it's important. But they have to be able to purchase in that way as well. When you spoke about it being the wrong time in selling features and functions and products and things like that, I think that's really right. And the reason if we think behaviorally why salespeople do that, it's because they don't have enough in their pipeline to begin with. And they don't have enough in their pipeline potentially because we haven't segmented the market well for them. We've not given them the right set of accounts or size of accounts to go after. And we may not really be aware of what, what is our sales addressable market in the places where we've put talent. So this, this problem of execution at the end where we try and sell on features and functions and price, and you know, it also starts with the environment that we give people to sell in in the first place. And I think we've got to think about that because it's so easy to go, we just got to train people on being outcome oriented. It's like, well, yeah, but if everything else doesn't line up to support that, for example, let them walk away from the deal because it's the wrong time instead of forcing the customer to make a decision that they get no value out of it, they just end up turning on because it was the only deal they had in their pipeline at the time. Couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, the, the amount of money and time that is wasted on trying to squeeze square pegs into round holes, then the cost of having to replace the churned customers. I mean, a 15% churn rate means you have to replace 49% of your customers every three years. What if you just kept those customers and then grew on top? You'd be 49% better off with no additional cost. And actually, you'd be time value of money and cost of acquisition of a new client. You'd probably be 100% better off. Because it costs seven to eight times to win a new client as it does to keep an existing one, right? That's the first thing. So the, the literal cost of turn, the cultural erosion, the brand value impact. I mean, there's so many things that would be different. So that's why I think your example is great, but the benefit is even higher. So we've got to start thinking about how we sell this message. I've got some strategies that I think we're going will work when eventually we're big enough to be able to do that. but. In the meantime, how do you uh, get teams uh, to work together? And I'm, in particular, I'd be really curious about, have you been able to get managers to uh, co- genuinely cooperate together and work around a problem from other departments, not just sales, but marketing, product, CS, account management, and even other departments like finance, logistics, whoever it is that is going to touch the customer. How do you get diverse teams of managers to cooperate? Because they're the ones who are probably going to get the stories from the coalface. Yeah, I have. I, I think some of this starts with you do need to have a very clear, defined go-to-market strategy and kind of what it is you're out, what are you setting out to achieve? And everyone who's responsible for leaning into that, all of the different operational teams need to have some common metrics and objectives around those goals. So that when we try to collaborate and come together, we're working on a common problem. We might have slightly different metrics and some variations of that, but you know, I'm not asking you to help me solve a problem that's taking you away 
from something different that you need to achieve. We're trying to get to the same thing. So when we have sales, marketing, and product aligned, it looks something like we've got voice of the customer programs that provide enough balance so that it's not just the noisy salesperson crying for one deal, but actually we evaluate the voice of the customer in the market based on our product roadmap that we have in place, based on where we know the market needs to go, where our products and services need to go. We're creating marketing campaigns and collateral for sales that support that direction of travel, not creating a bunch of one-offs to try and win a deal, right? Well, I'm going to build build on that because I'm really excited about this. I'm I'm trying to pull together a solution at the moment where we have a collaboration platform that allows us to bring all of the assets, every conversation, all of our plans, our mutual action plans, and create private rooms so the customer can uh, talk privately. We can have internal conversations all on a collaboration platform like a war room. Um, But then building that as part of the training platform, because what we can now do is we can embed a micro training and micro coaching tool so that we can practice the moments as partners together that we're going to have with the next stage in the conversation with the customer. So everybody can get up to speed because the rule there is, you know, amateurs practice at home um, in front of the customer and uh, pros practice at home. Well, this is a great way of creating an asset that is based on live sales for us to help ramp up new buyers because they can work off the basis of real life sales. Now, how exciting is that? I know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of good work to be done. There is, but it's possible. The thing is that what I'm really excited about now is the technology, actually, if we apply it well and we ask the right questions and we come at it with the right intent, I think we can produce some amazing businesses that are transformatory, but also sustainable. They'll last. These will be businesses that are built on solid foundations. I agree. And I think the training that you talked about is, for me, this is the most important important part is that we love these tools and we can even roll them out well but I do think that we've created a gap for ourselves you know back when I entered the tech cafe right in the in the 90s we had really great training I mean organizations were known for being the best at training up say salespeople you know Xerox for example was really yeah. you know, they had great training programs for salespeople. And so even if you didn't want to sell copiers, it was a great place to go and get a job because you'd get great training. Yeah, it was a VIP pass on your CV as well. Yeah. We, you know, when I started at MCI, we had to go away for like two weeks to a new hire camp in Atlanta. Everybody went, you spent all this time learning all our products, learning our services, meeting departments, meeting your cohort you know, of new hires. So you had a network in the organization, all of that stuff. Well, those types of things happen so rarely anymore. And instead, what we do is we give them tools and we give them playbooks. Of course, we need those things. But this, the training of people has gotten really bad because we have this over-reliance on these other things. And what happens over time is we're creating these systemic gaps. That Then there's no budget to assess your employees, to figure out what the gaps are, to try and fill them. We just give them new tools and new scripts and, you know, and what ends up happening, we all get terrible automated emails that are completely not personal. I mean, we get phone calls at all the wrong time. 
all of those bad habits. So I, I would love to find a world where we can take advantage of the tech, like you said, in the right context, but that we actually train people in the art of conversation again to be well, and how to actually sell. To that end, I'm going to actually do a personal plug, which is my new practice labs, because the whole idea of practice labs is that you learn to do the stuff that you've learned in training, whether you've done medic or sound or whatever, I don't care. But you've got to practice it in a safe environment where you can fail and where you can test the limits. But you need to practice in context as well. So uh, what I'm really excited about this is that you bring a real-life scenario, but you're not the salesperson. You're the buyer, you're an observer, and then eventually you get to be the seller. But everybody else picks at your problem, and they look at it through the different lenses that they see the world through. That's where diversity really comes into it. Because now what you've got is diversity of thought around the customer problem and the problem that you're facing to uh, trying to help the customer solve. That kind of thing is really powerful. But we're bringing in customers. We're bringing in CROs. We're bringing in CFOs. We're bringing in CTOs, whoever. And we're also bringing in specialists in trust and neuroscience so they can observe what you're doing and coach you in the same, at the same time. But you get that peer-to-peer, and we've got an offline version. So if you're struggling with a specific thing, we can take that moment. It might be 20 seconds where you talk about a price increase or introduce a new product or something, and you can practice that asynchronously. So I'm really excited about this. So I'm very curious yeah. if anyone's listening, they uh, want to talk about it to me, then please do get in touch. Sorry, Tamara, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that that is really needed because I've had sales reps. Now, you know, when we're talking about the young starters. We've got great programs where people will come in and sort of BDRs and be great on the phone. But you also have sales reps who have come in, they've somehow landed in just sort of customer selling. And they, they're not comfortable picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I think about my 20-something-year-olds, right, they are far less comfortable picking up the phone. Mm-hmm. It's something that's really difficult for them. And when I first experienced this, I thought it was the strangest thing because to me, being in sales is talking on the phone as at least a first... I mean, right in, the, in the olden days, it was you, <laughs> you sat... <laughs> at, a, at a bank of phones with people and you're just like hammering out calls. Yeah. And to imagine that today's salespeople could actually be afraid of picking up the phone because they've become so accustomed to their sales cadence tools that automate and do so much of the work for them. I thought, wow, we're really missing a trick because the most important thing at the end of the day is that you have a human connection with your buyer because people do still ultimately buy from people, people they trust, people that have built confidence in them, people that are solving the problems, delivering outcomes that have value but it comes from people and i think a conversation if we don't have have conversations we're really in trouble and at the end of the day a human being signs the agreement Uh, if that human being is uncertain they have doubts about you your company your proposition or whether it's going to deliver the result you're screwed they're not going to buy and you're going to end up with yet another close loss no decision and there will be a mystery so again, where diversity really comes into its own is uh, think about the diversity of partners uh, that your enterprise customers have who are trusted and known by your end customer, the end prospect. Um, and how many of them are you targeting? 
and trying to build relationships with and establishing, well, what if I can help that partner sell more of what they already want to sell more of? Yeah. Reckon they might help me take me into that account. Now, if you get injected in half a dozen different places, that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Cameron, this has been fascinating as always. No doubt you'll be back uh, for another installment uh, <laughs> in the future. How can people get hold of you? LinkedIn's always a great way. Tamara McMillan at LinkedIn. That's probably the best. My contact details are there. And I love conversing and learning. So I would love to hear from anyone listening to this podcast, particularly if there's thoughts hugely divergent to mine, because then we can grow together. So on that note, I think one of the most important lessons that I've really learned is go and find people who you disagree with and talk to them. You'd be amazed at how much you can learn and what yeah. common ground there is. That's, the, that's been the most uh, revealing thing for me, just how much I do have in common with people I disagree with. <laughs> I guess I'll, my closing note to that would be, um, I think it's really important that, you, that we enter those conversations with an open mind. No doubt we'll enter them with an opinion, but as long as we're sincerely willing to change our convictions based on new information, I think those are always the best conversations to have. The difficulty is when we talk to divergent people and our ambition ultimately is to change their mind and convert them to our way of thinking. That's not very helpful. No, but if it's to gain understanding and to learn, yeah. to advance, uh, whether you agree or not, absolutely, uh, there's a win. Okay, one final question then. Um, what was the best mistake you made around diversity? The best mistake I made around diversity? That's tough. I suppose the honest answer would be making too narrow a definition. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, that we need to be thoughtful that it's understandable that it can start with things that are more obvious and seeing a person similar to you is really meaningful for people feeling accepted and welcome. But it does go broader than that. I think keeping your definition not so broad that it becomes nothing, but that you really allow for the beautiful breadth of humanity that's out there and acknowledge the many ways in which we are unique and different. I think that's something that I'm continuing to strive to try and understand and do. On that note, Tamara McMillan, thank you. You're welcome. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Get in touch with Tamara, get in touch with me, and do leave review on your favorite podcast channel. Um, in the meantime, if you're looking for a coach who's going to give you a bit of a kick up the ass when you really need it, um, but they're going to have your back and help you to navigate the difficult decisions that you're going to have to make. Navigating, should I do this because it's in the best interest of my customer or should I uh, keep my job and keep my boss happy? How do you manage those kind of conversations? Well, if that's the kind of conversation you're facing at the moment, email me, marcus at laughs-last.com or ping me a DM on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.